can be seated. Isn't that our prayer this morning, that the Lord would speak to us, that he would feed us from his holy word. We come to him not to hear opinions this morning, but to hear the words of God. If I don't know you, my name is John Sarver. I'm one of the pastors here. We come to a portion in our service called the Pastoral Prayer, where we'll pray for the world, for a neighboring church in our city. We'll pray for a couple members in our body. So let's go to God now. We speak to him. Father, we come before you. We pray for your church all over the world. We pray in particular for the persecuted church all over the world who gather often in secret and in hiding all throughout this weekend. We pray that Christians would not be surprised by the ordeals that come upon them as though something unusual were happening to them. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted that they would rejoice as they share in the sufferings of Christ. We pray that they would long for his glory to be revealed when their joy would be made full. We pray that if they are ridiculed for the name of Christ, that they would count themselves as blessed, knowing that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. We pray that they would not suffer for doing evil, but that they would suffer as Christians, that they wouldn't be ashamed. We pray that their hope would be in the return of your son, We pray that they would suffer according to your will, and in doing so, they would entrust themselves to you, a faithful creator. We pray you would sustain our brothers and sisters by your grace and by your spirit. May they be on our minds. May we pray for them regularly. Turning to our city, we pray for Audubon Baptist Church. We pray that their body would be like-minded, that they would be sympathetic toward one another, that they would love each other, We pray that they would be a compassionate and humble people. We pray that they would not pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but we pray that they would bless one another, knowing that they were called for this so they may inherit a blessing. We pray for their elders. We pray for Rich in particular, that he would keep a close watch on his life and his doctrine. We pray that he would preach the gospel faithfully, that he would not seek to distort it, that you would speak through him even this morning as he preaches. And turning to our church, Midtown Baptist Church, we pray for our sister Taylor Lavin. We come to you, the God of all comfort and mercy. We pray that you would comfort her heart, even as she continues to mourn the loss of her grandmother. We pray that you would comfort her in her affliction. We pray that you would comfort us, that we might comfort her, that we would seek to bear her burdens. We pray that just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us to forgive us of our sins, that his comfort would overflow to her. Would you sustain her by your fatherly hand? We pray that she would not mourn like those who have no hope. We pray instead that she would fix her eyes upon Christ, that she would long for his return. She would long for the day that death will be defeated once and for all. And we pray for our brother Matthew Lisbony, Lisbony, who's recently moved to Ethiopia, We pray that you would help him in his transition. We pray that he would be a blessing to Steve in that church there. We pray that he would teach faithfully at the school that he's at. We pray that um, he would seek to be a minister of Christ wherever he is, that he would not distort the word of God in any way. We pray that he would um, live as a new creation. He would live as an ambassador of Christ, even in a different country that he would view himself not as an ambassador of the U.S., but of Jesus and his kingdom. We pray that through him you would make your message of reconciliation known. We pray now for the preaching of your word. We pray that you indeed would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you would plant your truth deep in us, that you would shape and fashion us. We pray that we would be humbled before your word, that we would submit to your word. Pray that I would only speak truthfully this morning. Pray that you would be honored in our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1. I'm just playing. Galatians chapter 1. 
verses 6 through 10. I will just recap us quickly. We have a lot to get to. Um, Just kind of remind us of the context. Paul has planted several churches in Galatia, probably on his first missionary journey. He's back in Antioch, most likely, and he gets word, he receives word that after he left, these Judaizers, kind of these anti-missionaries have come in from, probably from Jerusalem, and they're preaching a different gospel to the Galatians. Now, a lot of it sounds the same. They're saying that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, but not in that alone. We need to um, be circumcised. We need to obey the old covenant. We're saved by faith and works, by grace and merit, by Christ and our obedience to the law. The book of Galatians is Paul's response. Now, I said this last week. It's as though the book is uh, written to recovering Pharisees. We have this bend towards legalism. And in this sense, the book is like a breath of fresh air to us. It serves as a warning um, should we ever consider changing the gospel. It also stands a rebuke in anything in us that would seek to change the gospel. I think we'll feel more of that this week as Paul is really coming after the false teachers and seeking to correct the Philippians. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning is this. There is only one gospel that saves. There is only one gospel that saves. Said more fully, there is only one. There is one, there is only one true and unchanging gospel of God's free salvation in Christ. It says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To turn to a different gospel is to fall from grace. Worse yet, to preach a different gospel is to be cursed. Seeing that there is only one gospel, we've received it, we believe in it, what are we to do with it? We really see, well, the opposite in the Galatians. But we are to, these are three points this morning, we are to protect the gospel. We are to preach the gospel. And we are to please the God of the gospel. We are to protect the gospel. We'll see that in verses 6 and 7. We are to preach the gospel. We'll see that in verses 8 and 9. And we are to please the God of the gospel. So we protect, we preach, and our aim, our desire is to please the God of the gospel above all else. So first, we are to protect the gospel. We preserve it. We cling to it. We dare not change it or tamper with it. So we saw last week, Paul begins his letter by identifying himself as uh, the author, which is typical, as the apostle, which is also typical, but then he goes into a defense of his apostleship, which is unique. And it's because the Judaizers are claiming that Paul's message had human origin. Like he made this thing up. Paul explains that he didn't learn the gospel from man, not from any mere man at least. He learned it from the God-man, from Jesus Christ. Then he prays that they would continue to experience the peace of God, which comes by God's grace alone. Now, right here, you expect Paul to move into a note of thanksgiving. That's kind of the typical pattern of his letters. Only, they don't get a thanksgiving. Basically, every other letter, Paul gives some kind of thanksgiving for the church. Even the Corinthians. They are like a dumpster fire of a church. It's Paul's language, not mine. Even the Corinthians get a thanksgiving. Paul says he's amazed but it's not by how well their church is doing. Look at verse six. 
I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice Paul writes in the present tense, he says you're quickly turning away. You see, there's still hope. That's why Paul's picked up pen and paper to write them. He's gonna speak the truth in love, which sometimes means speaking harshly to save a sinner from death. Sometimes you use the rod to bring wandering sheep home. The word for turning here, it's a military term. It describes someone who has deserted the army. It stresses how serious their departure is. This is not like a little disagreement, something we agree to disagree on. But the Galatians understand themselves to be Christians. Paul cannot affirm that while they are holding to a false gospel. It's like they've deserted. They've gone AWOL. Now, Paul seems to be drawing off language from Exodus chapter 32. We saw this text, and I preached Jonah recently. It's not surprising that it comes up repeatedly in Scripture because it's kind of like Israel's first fall. It's a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. God redeems Israel by his grace. He brings her up out of slavery from Egypt. He does so by powerful signs and wonders. And then Israel is tired of waiting for Moses and for God on Mount Sinai. It's kind of like Yahweh's taken us this far. This other God will take us the rest of the way. So they tell Aaron to make for them an idol. Aaron takes her gold. He shapes it into a calf. God saved them to worship him on a mountain, but they've made a false god and set up a festival in its honor. This is what Yahweh tells Moses. Go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. From the, they have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who you brought up from the land of Egypt. You see, God saved them in the most visible, powerful, and gracious of ways. Yet they turned from him to a metal object they made with their own hands, something from human origin. I want to say just a couple of things about this, but first, friends, we are prone to wander. It is the human condition. Israel does so quickly after their salvation, the churches in Galatia did so quickly after theirs. If it can happen to churches the Apostle Paul planted, it can happen to us. That should sober us. We persevere by God's grace and His grace alone. It should produce in us a healthy and holy fear and humility. Second, notice the personal nature of their desertion of their turning Israel turned from God to a calf in embracing a different gospel the Galatian church has turned away from God look at verse 6 their departure is put in personal relational terms Paul says I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel it's not just that they're turning to a different gospel they are it's that they're turning away from God it's not just that they've embraced a different doctrinal stance. They have, but it's much more. They are deserting the God who called them by the grace of Christ. Yes, it was Paul who preached, but it wasn't Paul who called them. It was God who called through the preached word. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. You see, turning from God's gospel is turning from the gospel's God. Friends, there are loads of things we can disagree on and still be in fellowship in. I'm what you would call an amillennial, okay? That means I think Christ is reigning as king over the millennial kingdom right now. If, you're, if you don't know what that means, exactly, <laughs> Okay, it's not central for our fellowship. It's not in our statement of faith. You might think I'm wrong, that's fine. We can still disagree and be in Christian fellowship in this church. There are some things that if we disagreed on, we could still have Christian fellowship but not be in the same church. 
okay? Praise God that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters believe that God has spoken about baptism in Scripture and are seeking to obey Him. Okay, we might disagree, but in an age where there's no place for truth even in the church, praise God that they are seeking to follow Jesus. They might be wrong, but they're trying. <laughs> we can disagree and love each other and partner on different levels. It's a secondary issue. The gospel is not something we can agree to disagree on and be in Christian fellowship because turning from it is turning from God. It's like willfully moving from the kingdom of the beloved son back into the kingdom of darkness. To use the language of Galatians, it's like trying to move from new creation back into the present evil age from freedom to slavery. Why is this such a serious thing that we get the gospel right? Last week, we saw that peace with God comes through grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul describes us as enemies of God before we were reconciled. We were set against him and therefore he against us. And given our infinite debt against God, our crimes against him, our sinful nature, we cannot fix our problem. We cannot be good enough. We cannot work hard enough. Doing our best is not enough. Friends, the world may think highly of you, but God sees you as you are. Apart from Christ, sinful and guilty of treason. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of the Son. The Son gives himself up for our sins to make us sons and daughters. It is the great exchange. He takes our sin, our guilt, our punishment. We get his righteousness, his relationship with the Father. In Christ, and in Christ alone, God has dealt with our problem once and for all. Jesus has fulfilled both demands of the law. He lived perfectly on our place, and yet he was punished as though he were the criminal. You see, turning from the gospel is turning from God because it's God's only means of salvation. Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, the gospel is God's only means of salvation, and it's not because of any limitation in him. He has made the way for us to be saved from our sins and to be reconciled to him. The way is perfect. It is his son. It is offered to us without price. We simply grab hold of Jesus in faith and repentance. You see, to reject the gospel or to turn from it by changing it, it's like rejecting your only means of salvation. It's like if you were drowning in the middle of the ocean, hundreds of miles away from land, and the only ship that's going to come to save you comes and you refuse it. You say, I'm going to swim back. Paul couldn't put it any clearer, Galatians 5 verse 4. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You see, peace with God comes through the grace of God. Last week we saw no grace, no peace. This week we see no gospel, no God. Turning from the gospel is turning from God. There are many things we can get wrong, and I promise you, do get wrong. This cannot be one of them. This is why Paul's amazed. So quickly they've turned from the gospel. He goes on, verse 7. Not that there is another gospel. He's got to give this quick qualifier. It's like you're turning to a different gospel. Well, not that there actually is another gospel. There's the one gospel, and then there are perversions of it. Look at verse 7 again. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, the Judaizers have taken the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and they've distorted it. They've perverted it. That's what makes it so dangerous. It sounds right. Some of it, if not most of it, is true. 
They didn't start with a different gospel. They started with the gospel and then they changed it. It's not like they came to Galatia and said, Jesus, who's that? Never heard of them. Like an infinite, invisible God named Yahweh, never heard of him. God is actually a big flying spaghetti monster. And we're not Christians, we're called Pastafarians. This is like a real atheistic, satirical religion. And the Galatian churches are like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. God is actually a big thing of pasta, and we need to work for our salvation. You see, they came with much of the same language as Paul. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was crucified for sins. He died and was buried. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He will return to judge the living and the dead. If the Apostles' Creed was around, they would be willing to sign it. They're saying, yes, we're saved by faith through grace in Christ. But that's not enough. You need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to old covenant law. It's faith plus works. It's grace plus merit. It's Christ plus the law. But you see, people, they fell for it because it sounds plausible. It sounds believable. Like Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden, the Galatians are deceived by the Judaizers. It sounded right enough. In fact, to them, it sounded more true than the gospel. But friends, with the gospel, there are no half-truths. We either get it right or we get it wrong. And it's not a hard message. It's not like God is asking us to do quantum physics. We recognize our need. We fling ourselves upon the sufficiency of Christ. We believe that he has borne our sins and we get his righteousness and it's a gift. But you see, the most insidious and pernicious gospels, those that pose a threat to us, are those that sound true. They get a lot right, but they get some of the most important things wrong. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the immature are tossed by the waves. They're blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Thomas Schreiner puts it really well when he says, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. They're preaching a different Christ but they're still calling him Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, but it kind of looks like him. It sounds a lot like him. Friends, I wonder what false gospels we are inclined to believe. Do you know the gospel well enough that you can share it with someone? Well enough that you can guard it? Well enough that you can spot a false gospel when you hear it? Well enough that you know what a Christian is? That's the go- a person who's embraced the gospel. Well enough that you know what a true church is? Are there things about the gospel that you don't like that you would change if you could? I can think of several false gospels that are pervasive in our culture. The first one is the gospel of performance. This is what the Galatians were believing. Simply put, you need to be good enough for God to forgive you or for you to be saved. Like you need to be good enough, you need to work hard enough for God to love you. You could... Put it, it's a little crass, but do your best and Jesus will do the rest. In the gospel of performance, forgiveness is the goal. Okay, this is what the Judaizers were teaching. We saw this in Acts chapter 15, verse 1 last time. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So in the gospel of performance, we're righteous in God's eyes when we are actually righteous, when we're actually good people. I said this earlier and again last week, but most of us are recovering Pharisees. It's not because we've come out of a particular Jewish sect, but because we struggle to believe that God looks on us and sees the righteousness of his son, that he doesn't hold our wrongs over us, that he's not waiting to say, I told you so. We don't have to try any harder for God to love us. There's a difference between fighting to believe what is true and embracing what is false. I think the quintessential gospel of performance is Roman Catholicism. This is what Paul is 
Similar to what Paul was reacted to, Galatians, the reformers were reacting to in the 16th century. I say this not to bash our Roman Catholic friends, whom we have a lot in common with. But I mentioned this for a couple reasons. One, there is actually a kind of strong movement of young people kind of making the trek back to Rome. And secondly, I think we're prone to think our differences with them is one of semantics. And so we're less apt to share the gospel with them. We need to love and pray and share the gospel with our Roman Catholic friends. I'll try to explain for you their system as quickly as I can. They believe that in baptism we are justified, which doesn't mean it's not forensic the way that we think about it. They believe that we've been infused with grace and that we are actually righteous in God's eyes because we're righteous people. You could think of it as like a glass. At baptism, your righteousness cup is all the way up. Well, the second you start sinning, for forgivable sins at least, venial sins, your righteousness starts going down. But you can bring it back up through the sacramental and penitential system, which is the church, which is to say through good works. The more you're righteous, the more righteous you actually are. Your goal is to be as righteous as possible when you die, because then you will go to purgatory where the rest of your sins will be washed away. I hope the difference is obvious. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin with forgiveness because Jesus has done it all. He represented us perfectly in his life, in his death and resurrection. God looks upon the sufficiency of his son and he sees us that we're righteous and forgiven. Our sins were nailed to the cross with their debts and its legal obligations and they were done away with once and for all. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We simply accept the gift. So if the gospel offers us forgiveness, Catholicism says forgiveness is the goal. And it comes to us through the merit of Christ, through the merit of the saints, and through our own merit. God considers us righteous when we actually are righteous. Which is to say we're saved by grace and works, by faith and merit, by Christ and the law. Again, I don't say this to bash any of our Roman Catholic friends or family. A lot of, I have a lot of Roman Catholic family. We need to feel the urgency to pray for them, to share the gospel with them. I want to make another important disclaimer. I'm not saying there aren't any Roman Catholics who truly love Jesus, who are truly trusting in him and him alone for salvation. But if they have flung themselves upon Christ, trusting in his sufficiency alone for their justification, they are doing so contrary to the teaching of Rome. So the question is not whether or not God might save some Catholics. It's whether or not Rome possesses, protects, and preaches the gospel, and they do not. They are preaching that we are saved by grace and merit, by Christ and the church. So this is the first false gospel we see. It's that of works. It's a works-based gospel. The second is the prosperity gospel. And yes, these are all going to be with, they'll all begin with the letter P. <laughs> this is perhaps the most insidious one, I think, because it's everywhere, including, I would venture to guess, most of our hearts. The prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus died so that we can be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And we come to that by believing strongly, by being good people, so working, and by um, doing religious rituals like giving or praying certain prayers. Translation, if you are good enough, God will treat you good. So if sin is man caving in on himself, the prosperity gospel has taken that desire and made it religious. It is glorified self worship and works you can have what you want as long as you're good enough and then you can manipulate God into giving it to you it is a works-based gospel only rather than having God as its goal we have gold or personal growth or physical health but it's so dangerous because it weds the American dream with the Christian gospel and it gives us something straight out of hell it takes what are natural desires, like being healthy, being successful, supporting your families. It takes their most twisted perversions and it sets them up like golden calves for us to worship. It is a false gospel. And what's sad about it, it is a 
cheap version of the real thing. Friends, I promise you, if you are in Christ, you will be healthier and wealthier and happier than any false gospel can promise you, but eternally so. When we see the king in his beauty and we reign with him, don't let anybody cheapen your eternal riches with temporal promises they cannot cash. Next, there is the progressive gospel. By this, I mean theological liberalism. Like, we've progressed. We've come so far. We've progressed so far morally. Like, man's not sinful, and God's certainly not angry with sin, and he certainly didn't punish his son on the cross, and that's certainly not the only message that we need to believe to be saved. Like, we've come too far morally to believe that. Man's basically good. He just needs a bit of self-help. He just needed an example of what a, a loving life looks like. We get that in Christ. You see, it also is a type of works-based gospel. So we've come too far morally. We've also come too far intellectually. Like, do we really think Jesus healed the blind and multiplied bread and rose from the dead? Like, maybe that's what people believed in the 1300s, but not in 2021. Richard Niebuhr put it well in 1938 when he said this of theological liberalism, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Christianity is stripped of all of its substance and in its place we erect love as we define it and we call it God. Behold the gods who have brought you up out of Egypt. Friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could keep going. Anything that you add to the gospel distorts it. It could be politics. To be a Christian, you must vote Republican or you must vote Democrat. To be a Christian, you need to believe in my cause in the way that I believe in it. You need to adopt my policies. To be a Christian, you need to leave your culture. You need to embrace my culture. Anything that we add to the gospel is a perversion of the gospel. We need to be on guard because Paul says people aim to do us trouble. John Stott, who would have known this all too well, as a minister in the Church of England in the mid-20th century, he said this in verse 7. The church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. You see, it's unlikely we are going to make the move from Christianity to Pastafarianism. <laughs> if that's a real issue for you, we should talk about it after service. The most dangerous teachers come from within. They preach from pulpits. They teach in Christian universities and seminaries. They have popular podcasts and best-selling books. And here's the thing, they think they're saving Christianity. Just like the Judaizers thought they were correcting Paul to save the Galatians. Good intentions are not enough. Only the gospel saves. Friends, we need to know the gospel better than we know anything else so that we can preserve it and preserve in it. We need to be able to identify and sniff out false gospels and put, not put up with them for a second. And it often comes to us through preaching. <laughs> this brings us to our next point. We are to preach the gospel. We are to preach the gospel. That means we're to listen to and submit to good teaching and we are to eschew false teaching. It means that we are to preach the gospel, both the pastors and the members, as we speak the truth in love to one another. Like, the Galatians should have protected their pulpit. Like, Adam should have protected the garden. But instead, they're like, oh, you're from Jerusalem? Tell us more about this workspace gospel. How about you preach from our pulpit on Sunday? Look what Paul says, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Paul's like really taking it to the next level here. <laughs> Not only does turning to another gospel mean turning from God, but preaching another gospel message means you're cursed, which is to say you are condemned before God. He says it twice in case, in case we missed him or thought maybe it was a little extreme. Verse 9, as we have said before, 
like literally the last verse. I now say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. Paul could not put it in more serious or sobering or black and white terms. There is one gospel. Pervert and preach a different one and you stand condemned. Think about it. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in yourself. You can't be good enough, which means you stand cursed under the law. Well, if trusting in something other than Christ means you're cursed, what is going to happen to the person who preaches a gospel that encourages people not to trust in Christ, but to trust in themselves? Paul says they are eternally damned. And it doesn't matter who's preaching the message. Look at verse 8 again. Even if we, like the apostles, the people who preached to you the first time, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Even if it's an apostle or an angel. Paul's picking like the two highest uh, creaturely authorities he can think of, at least over the church. They are messengers of God. And Paul says, even if we, the apostles or angels, preach to you a different gospel, we are accursed. Now, angels and apostles, they normally speak on God's behalf, which means if they speak normally, you listen. But their authority and angels' authority and apostles' authority, it's derived. That means it comes from God. And they're only authoritative insofar as they are speaking God's words. What makes it true is not who says it. It's not their qualifications, their credentials, their resume, whether or not they're ordained. It matters whether or not it agrees with what God has said. It doesn't matter who says it if it's not true. Paul doesn't care if it comes from your mama, your pastor, the Pope, an apostle, or an angel from heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. It has never changed. It will never change. And Paul says, anyone who preaches a different gospel is cursed. Friends, you see, we do not stand in judgment over God's gospel. We don't seek to change it. As feeble, fallen creatures, we don't call God to account. We don't accuse him of being offensive or exclusive or unloving or stupid or immoral. In the gospel, God calls us to account. We are the offensive, unloving, immoral, and idolatrous ones. And though we stand condemned, God offers us forgiveness. By his grace and his mercy, he offers us forgiveness of sins. And it comes to us through his son at great price to the son. It's not ours to change, it's ours to believe, to protect, to guard, to preach. Think about it, if the entire world's population was infected with a deadly disease, like really deadly, with 100% mortality rate, and you have the only cure, and you have enough of it for everyone, you don't tweak it, you don't change it, doesn't matter how hard it hurts to administer it, you protect it, you give it to as many people as possible, if you change it, this only cure, the only life-saving cure that the world needs, if you change it, you stand condemned. In the gospel, in the gospel alone, God himself has dealt with our sin problem. And God's message does not need our improving. We'll see this in verse 10, but we are servants, not lords of the message. So how do we preserve the gospel? How do we ensure that the gospel we preach is the gospel of the Bible? I want to give just a few brief applications and mainly speaking to the members here. One, every member needs to know the gospel. Like more than you know the roster of your favorite team, more than you know the in and outs of your workplace, more than you know what's on the ballot during election season, you need to know the gospel so that you can cling to it, so that you can teach it to other members, to the children, to your own children, so you can preach it to your neighbors, so you can sniff out a false gospel when you hear one. 
Second, we need to be a part of gospel-preaching churches where we're regularly reminded of the gospel in the preaching, in the liturgy, in the songs, in the readings, in the prayers, and in the life of the churches we're in one another's homes as we are confronting each other of our sin and reminding one another of the promise that we have in Christ. This is why membership is so important. Third, and this is speaking to the members only, very specifically, we need to only let Christians into the membership. That may seem obvious, but the history of the church would suggest otherwise. Nowadays, it's as though you want to blur the lines between the church and the world as much as you can to make people feel comfortable before they believed. There's this slogan, belong before you believe. Friends, if we want to lose the gospel over time, we should let non-Christians join membership. This is why membership meetings are so important. We are doing the work of thinking about what is the gospel? What is a Christian? What is a church? As we're voting on whom we believe to be future kings and queens of the cosmos, we're telling the world this is a Christian. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, there is no place we'd rather you be. Please hear me say you are welcome here for as long as you want to come. Again, there's no place we'd rather you be. We hope you feel welcomed and loved. What I'm saying is that the church is like a family with clear lines. Friends come over to our house. They spend time with us. But there's a point where they leave. We lock the doors. We do family business. We need to maintain while being loving, preaching the gospel, inviting people to join us as family. We need to maintain clear lines around our family. It means we need to know the gospel. We need to know what a Christian is. And fourthly, we need to ensure that the preaching from the pulpit is consistent with our statement of faith. You see, churches that preach false gospels don't just pop up out of nowhere. They're not typically planted. They tend to have the oldest and most beautiful buildings. It's because true churches slowly drift over time. The pulpit moves away from preaching the hard truths of the gospel to a distorted gospel, a more palatable gospel. And the people pay the pastors to tickle their ears. Friends, please do not ever push me or Josh away from preaching hard truths of the text to tell jokes and anecdotes from the pulpit. I didn't wake up excited to preach this text. I didn't. But as we'll see in verse 10, we can't be pleasers of people and servants of Christ. Life is too short and eternity is too long for your pastors to give you fluff from the pulpit. Now consider all these, even just looking at the text, you'll notice Paul hasn't spoken to the pastors of any of these churches directly. He's talking to the members. Like if you planted a church and they embraced a different gospel, wouldn't you write their pastor? Paul thinks the members are responsible for knowing the gospel, for protecting it, and therefore they're the ones who are responsible for adopting a false gospel. It is why we all as members, not just the pastors, as members, we vote in on members. We're responsible for the statement of faith, the final seat of authority, the responsibility falls with all of us. We will rise and fall together. So we must protect, we must preach and the only way we'll do this is if we fear God above all else. We come to our last point. It'll be brief. But we please God and not men. Verse 10, Paul says, Am I now striving to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is Paul's defense. So the Judaizers, they're saying that Paul was preaching to you an easy gospel. Like, he didn't want to make you be circumcised. It's too hard. So Paul, he actually watered down his message so that he could please you. He's a people pleaser. And Paul puts this in very clear terms that he can't be, you can't be a people pleaser and a servant of Christ. And if it weren't obvious up to this point, Paul is, he doesn't fear men. <laughs> and he said, if you preach a different gospel, you're cursed twice. The reason you can't please people and be a servant of Christ is because both of them are servitude, okay? Fear of man, people-pleasing, is it's a form of slavery. Think about it. If everything that you do or don't do, what you wear or don't wear, 
what you say or don't say, if it's dictated by what other people think their opinion of you is Lord, that is a heavy yoke, an oppressive yoke. Paul says we can't serve everyone and Jesus. We can't please everybody and Jesus. Someone is going to win, and if you fear men, it's going to be them. Jesus tells us plainly in Matthew chapter 6 that we cannot serve two masters. We will hate one and love the other. Friends, does the fear of man control you? A great litmus test for you is, does the fear of man dictate what kind of gospel you preach? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, The Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Think about it. The Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom. Your non-Christian friends and family want what? Because it's not the cross. We can preach what people want, or we can preach the gospel, but they're not the same message and only one of them saves. Perhaps nothing more reveals who we serve than what we're willing to suffer for. Like when push comes to shove, are you serving the opinions of men or of Christ? Richard Wormbrand was a minister in Romania during World War II. It was occupied by Nazi Germany. He and his wife Sabina, they witnessed the atrocities of the Nazi regime firsthand. They rescued Jewish children from ghettos. They sheltered them. They shared the gospel with them. Sabina's entire family were killed in concentration camps. Richard and Sabina were captured and beaten on several occasions for preaching the gospel. After Germany was defeated, it was replaced by the Soviet army. Romania became communist. The Warmbrands continued to minister in Romania. They would smuggle um, Bibles into Russia. They delivered over a, one million Bibles. They covered them, or Gospels rather, in, in communist propaganda and gave them to one million Russian soldiers who were stationed in Romania. Well, after Germany was defeated, they were replaced by the Soviets. They're continuing to minister. Then the communist regime held what was called the Congress of the Cults. They wanted to control the message of the churches to maintain the loyalty of the people. They wanted the people, they wanted the pastors to preach Christ plus communism. They wanted to control the message. You preach what we tell you to preach if you're going to survive. So they invited 4,000 religious leaders, including the Wormbrands, and then one by one, delegate after delegate, they approached the stage, they spoke, and they praised the Communist Party. They spoke about its virtues, its compatibility with Christianity. They would do things like this in Russia. They would speak about Stalin as though he were another Christ. I'm sure you all are aware of this, but 100 years of communism has left over 100 million dead. These delegates know this firsthand. Sabina was disgusted that all these pastors would distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. She looked at her husband and said, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. Now remember, they experienced Nazi Germany firsthand. He knows what will happen to him if he does. He says, if I do, you'll lose your husband. She responded, I would rather be a widow than married to a coward. Translation, I would rather be married to a servant of Christ than a pleaser of men. Richard, you can't do both now. Serve our king. Richard stood up like the delegates before him, but instead of praising communism, he said it was the church's duty not to preach communism, but to preach Christ alone to the glory of God alone. He would spend the next 14 years in prison undergoing the most severe torture because he would not renounce Christ. Friends, I wonder... Should the time come for us, will the sisters in this body be like Sabina, calling 
their brothers and husbands to fear God and not men. To preach the glory of Christ, even if it means scars on our backs. Serbina herself would go to prison just a few years later for sharing the gospel. I wonder if the men in this congregation will be like Richard, counting a loss all things compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Do we desire to please him, the one who gave himself up for our sins? Friends, are we willing to suffer now, to suffer the loss of reputation at work, among our family and friends, to be derided, to be misunderstood, to be spoken ill of? Are we willing to speak the truth of God as it comes to us from God? Or will we change it to please men? Will we protect the gospel of Jesus Christ by God's grace and preach it with boldness, striving only to please God? Friends, there is only one gospel that saves. It's not the gospel of performance or of progress or of politics or of social change. It is the gospel of our crucified and resurrected King. One that comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It will not change until the end of time, even as we do. May we protect it. May we prize it. May we preserve in it. And may we preach it until we die or Christ returns. Let's pray toward that end. God, we thank you that you have saved us through the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of your son. We thank you that it comes to us as a gift, that there is nothing left for us to do. We pray against the fear of man in our body. We pray we would not be people pleasers, that our aim would be to serve the one who has enlisted us, the one who has saved us. We pray that we would know the gospel, that we would cling to it, that we would not put up with a second for false, with false gospels. We pray that your text would promote in us humility, knowing that we ourselves are prone to wander. We need your grace. We pray all this in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.